Who knew that a letter written in 62 AD to a small city in Asia Minor would still be relevant over almost 2,000 years later to a church in Sandusky, Ohio? And we're going to be looking at that letter that Paul and Timothy wrote to a little town of Colossae over the next six weeks. And so we're looking at Colossians, discovering how it informs us to live in this new life. And so over the next uh, five weeks, we're going to be looking at leaving our old lives behind. And what does that actually look like to live in this brand new life that Jesus has given us? Uh, in two more weeks, my wife and I get to serve together and teach on marriage and parenting or grandparenting together. So that'll be great to look at. And then we're going to be looking at work. How do we work in a way that is for God's glory? And then how do we live a life of faith among those who don't believe? So we'll be looking at all five of these topics. And then the capstone will be a huge baptism celebration at the end of November. And so what I want to do just to begin is to look at the first eight verses of Colossians to see what Paul is exactly getting at as he writes to the Colossians. So here's what it says. This letter is from Paul, chosen by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and from our brother Timothy. We are writing to God's holy people in the city of Colossae who are faithful brothers and sisters in Christ. May God our Father give you grace and peace. We always pray for you and we give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. For, he, for we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and your love for all of God's people, which comes from your confident hope of what God has reserved for you in heaven. You have had this expectation ever since you first heard the truth of the good news. This same good news that came to you is going out all over the world. It is bearing fruit everywhere by changing lives, just as it's changed your lives. From the day you first heard and understood the truth about God's wonderful grace. You learned about the good news from Epaphras, our beloved co-worker. He is Christ's faithful servant and he is helping us on your behalf. He has told us about the love for others that the Holy Spirit has given you. So many things in these first eight verses that inform everything in Colossians. And so what we want to do today is we want to answer three questions. First of all, who are they? Who are these people that we read about? Paul, Timothy, Epaphras, the Colossian church. And then who is Christ Jesus? Paul tells us that the Colossians had faith in Christ Jesus. Who is Christ? And more specifically for us, what does this have to do with us today? So we want to go back into the first part of the letter and we want to see who these characters are. It's interesting just to see who's actually crafting this letter. And so we have Paul. Now Paul, for most of his life, lived a religious life, but he didn't have a relationship with God through Jesus. Which is interesting which means a guy like Paul can do all the right things. He can be moral. He can follow the rules. He can think that he has a relationship with the, with the Heavenly Father, but he doesn't. And he acted that way all of his life until finally Jesus came to him and he's like, look, what are you doing? 
You've been going through all the rules, all the rituals. You've been doing everything right, and yet, let's talk about this. You don't even have a relationship with God. Jesus said, it's time for that to change, Paul. And Paul had this eye-opening experience in the road to Damascus, and everything from that point forward was different. And because of Paul's life being changed and his understanding of Jesus, we are here today as a church. We can direct it all the way back to Paul's ministry. But it wasn't just Paul. We have Timothy. Timothy is the co-author of Colossians. And Timothy was a close friend of Paul's and a co-partner in ministry. Paul is Timothy's mentor. They have a great relationship. They work together, and they worked uh, together in crafting this letter to encourage the church in Colossae. Because Paul and Timothy never visited. They never planted this church. In fact, they sent somebody else, a man named Epaphras. And Epaphras was the one that planted the church. He was the one that brought the hope of Jesus to the Colossians. I, I can't imagine being a Epaphras and seeing these people ripe to hear about Jesus. And he goes and he says, let me tell you about a guy who died for you and rose again. And these people started to believe. And these people not only believed, their lives were changed. And they changed each other's lives with their love for one another, which ultimately spilled out into the world that we know it today. A lot of incredible things happening with these three individuals who then, again, changed the Colossian church's life. And when we read about the Colossian church, we see a group of people who are completely different. And there's three characteristics that describe these people. Here's what Paul says again. For we've heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and your love for all of God's people, which come from your confident hope of what God has reserved for you in heaven. You have had this expectation ever since you first heard the truth of the good news. Faith, hope, and love. Describe this group of people. Paul's saying, I've never met you, but I've heard great things. Here are the three things I've heard. Faith, hope, and love. Have you ever heard of those three words before? They're not just found in this letter. They're also found in another letter that Paul wrote to another church, a church in Corinth. And he says, listen, if you want your life to matter, if you want your life to go beyond the grave and make a difference, there's three things that matter. Faith, hope, and love. For these three things will last forever. The greatest of these, of course, is love. So when Paul says, hey, Colossian church, you are known for making an impact. You are known for doing incredible things. You're known for being people of faith, hope, and love. And these three things will not go unnoticed, not just on this side of the earth, but on the other side as well. I was typing out my message as I do throughout the week, and I'm looking at these verses, and I literally stopped typing, and I sat back in my chair, and I looked up, and I was reflecting on my life, and I wondered something. I wondered if I were to text my wife Paula at that moment or ask my kids or ask you or ask my other friends or family or even someone that barely knows me. If you were to describe my life in three words, what would you use? And I wonder if faith, hope, and love 
would be described for me. Because you know what? All other words don't have the eternal weight that these three words have. There is nothing more worthy to be known for than to live a life of faith, hope, and love. And if you were to ask your spouse, or your kids, or your grandkids, or your family, or your friends, or your coworkers, or people that barely know you, if you were to ask them, describe my life in three words, would faith, hope, and love be described about you? And if not, what is happening in your life that's holding you back from a life like this? I was thinking about what if, what if Paul were writing a letter to the chapel today? Probably not a letter, probably an email, maybe a text, maybe a tweet, whatever. And Paul was to say, hey, I know someone that helped plant your church. I know someone that goes to your church. And here is how he or she describes the chapel. Would faith, hope, and love be a part of that? If we were to go into the community, which matters the most, the community that we're supposed to be serving, we're supposed to be impacting, those who don't come inside the walls, but are outside the walls of the chapel, and we were to say, describe the chapel in three words, would faith, hope, and love be a part of that? Do you see the significance of this? It doesn't matter how we're described. If it doesn't contain faith, hope, and love, then something is wrong. Because the Colossian church had it. They had love for each other. They had their hope in something bigger than themselves. And they had their faith in Christ Jesus. Now, there are some of us in this room who would say, oh, yeah, I have my faith in Christ Jesus. I do, personally. Some of you do. The Colossians do. But I also know that there are some of you that come to this church that don't. That you would say, you know what? I am struggling to know if my faith is really in Christ Jesus. This past week, I was at a park with my oldest son, Hudson, and then my little girl, Remy. My wife had the other two middle children at gymnastics, and so I took Hudson to a park to play with a buddy, and then I took my little one-year-old, Remy, and we went and played in the little uh, baby kids area of this park. And as we're playing and having the greatest time together, this couple walks into the park, and they have a one-year-old boy and two dogs. And so I start to have a conversation with them, and we, we, all three of us just hit it off. We were talking about our kids they were talking about how, how in the world do you do four? I said, I'm not really even sure. We're just managing. <laughs> and as we kept going back and forth, I just felt a connection to them. And I wanted to share about my faith with them. Now, I wasn't doing this because I'm always confident in doing that. In fact, there's a lot of times where when people find out what I do, the conversations cut off pretty quickly. But this time... It was a little different. And so we're talking back and forth, and instead of me saying, hey, I'm a pastor, let's talk about Jesus, or, oh, that's nice about your kid. Would you like to accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior today? <laughs> that would have not worked well. And so I started to build a relationship with them, and then all of a sudden, this guy had a T-shirt on that I assume it's probably where he works. And so I said, hey, do you work here? 
He says, I do. And I go, oh, it's interesting. I know such and such. He goes, well, how do you know him? And I said, well, he and I attend the same church. At that point, the wife points to me. She goes, aha, I knew you looked familiar to me. And she said, you are a pastor at the chapel. And I said, I, I am. And she said, well, I've been there one time. She goes, I think you taught. She goes, were you the one that probably would have taught about LeBron James? I said, yeah, probably. <laughs> it wasn't Todd. I can guarantee you that. <laughs> and so we started talking, and I didn't say anything else. The conversation kind of drifted away. So we're playing again with the kids, and, and uh, the, the husband has the dogs over here, and I'm, I'm next to the wife. And I just said to her, hey, you said you went to the chapel. How was your experience? And she said, you know, we moved from Toledo two years ago. The chapel is the only church that I've ever attended. My husband doesn't go and doesn't believe. And said, but I went one time and I really liked it. But I haven't been back. And she said, it's not anything to do with the church. Just life is busy, blah, 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 blah. But I have a hard time going to church, any church. And I said, well, why is that? And she said, well, my denomination that I grew up in really hurt me. And I knew the denomination she was talking about, and I agreed with her. They have not done everything well. And she said, I am exploring faith. I don't know what I believe anymore. And I thought about you in that very moment. Some of you in this room would have been standing there, and you'd have been like, that's exactly my story. There are some of you that grew up in church and you went every day, sometimes twice on Sundays, and it was a part of your life. But then as you got older and you had to put your faith in action or started to look at what you believe critically, you looked at the world and you looked at your faith and they went like this. There wasn't any connection. And so you at that point said, I don't want to believe anymore. And you've walked away. Some of us in this room, uh, we look at the world and we look at God and we say, how does it work? I don't really see it. I see too much pain. I see too much suffering. I see, see too many things over here that I can't put the two together. There are some of you here and you want to believe. When you hear the scripture read and when you sing the songs, you have this feeling and even in the message you're listening. But there's no real connection there. And if you are here today and you believe in Jesus or you're skeptical and you want to believe but you're not there, let me tell you to both sides, welcome. You see, here's the interesting part that we all have in common, whether we believe in Jesus or not. You see, the object of our faith determines the outcome of our lives. Now, some of you that don't have faith or you're hanging on by a thread or you call yourself an agnostic or even an atheist, you would say, no, 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 we don't have faith in common. And I would say, we actually do. You see, faith can be connected to Jesus, but it doesn't have to be. Faith is not a religious word. Faith is synonymous to the word trust. And if we don't recognize it or not, that's okay, but all of us have our faith or our trust in something. And that faith is guiding us subconsciously, or some of us consciously, whether we recognize it or not. In fact, the thoughts that you have, the words that you form, the actions you perform, those are all connected to the object of your faith, whether it's God or not. 
The worth that you derive it from, the significance and the value that you want from it, it all goes back to our object of our faith. And that object determines how we live our lives. It determines how we speak. It determines how we spend money. It determines how we approach our jobs. It determines how we live in relationships. It all is determined by what we believe. Whether you believe in God or not. Here's why this question then is most important. If you are a follower of Christ, then what we're about to look at in the verses that Meg read earlier, hopefully will dig your roots deeper in this object of faith that we call Christ. For others of you that have either given up on Jesus, you're questioning Jesus, or your Jesus is connected to a bad experience from somebody, all I ask is that you would be open to what God wants to speak to you through these verses. And I'm praying, and I've been praying for you, that this will connect to the big picture. So instead of this happening, it'll happen like this. And the object of your faith is replaced with Jesus. I'm not going to ask you to stand up and, and profess Christ. I'm not going to ask you to do whatever it is that maybe uh, could be uncomfortable to you. I just want you to be open and then do whatever God is asking you to do. So for the next few moments, I'm going to read a verse or verses. And then in yellow, you will see just a one or two sentence summary of what Paul is getting at when it gets to our object of our faith that hopefully is Christ or someday will be. Christ. Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. Jesus was with his disciples, and Philip was like, I want to see God. And Jesus is like, are you kidding me? I have been with you this whole time, and you are asking to see God? I am him. If you want to know who Jesus is, and how he acts, or excuse me, who God is, and how he acts, and how he lives, and how he treats us, and how he conducts his business. The invisible God that we can't see is visible in Christ. When you go to the Gospels and you deep dive into the life of Christ, you are reading about God himself. He is the visible image of this invisible God that is all around us. He existed before anything was created and is supreme over all creation. For through him, God created everything in the heavenly realms and on earth. He made the things we can see and the things we can't see, such as thrones, kingdoms, rulers, and authorities in the unseen world. God is the sovereign, purposeful creator. We see in Christ that he is big enough to create all that we see, but he is kind enough and caring enough and loving enough to that all that we can see and even the things we can't see, there is a purpose behind it. There is a reason behind it. There is a heartbeat behind it. And everything reflects this sovereign, purposeful creator. And everything was created through him and for him. And he existed before anything else and he holds all creation Together, which means he is the king over everything. He sits on the throne. He is in charge. And most importantly, not only is he king, he is sustainer. Everything is held together by him. When we see the sun rise and then we see the sun set, 
That is God allowing that to happen. And nothing ever changes that. Our circumstances may change, but guess what doesn't change? The sun's going to rise. The sun's going to set. That is God sustaining all of creation and has a plan and a rhythm to life that connects back to being creator, king, and sustainer. Christ is also the head of the church, which is his body. Jesus is the leader of a worldwide gathering of his followers who are called to be good news bearers. The word church in Greek is the word ekklesia. Ekklesia means those who are called out. Which means if you are a follower of Jesus, you are called out of the pattern of this world. Colossians refers to this as the darkness of this world. This world that is selfish and prideful and only cares about themselves. We are to pull out of that kind of life. And we give our lives over to Jesus. But Jesus doesn't just say, okay, get comfortable and sit outside of this worldly bubble. No, no, I'm going to thrust you back into the world. Because you're called out of the pattern of the world, but you're pushed back in to redeem the world. And so we are called to go into the world to share about the good news of Jesus, just like Epaphras shared the good news to the Colossians who impacted generations to our church today. And Jesus leads all of that from the throne and he is the beginning, the supreme over all who rise from the dead. So he is first in everything. Clinton Arnold, he, he says this about being first in everything. What Paul had in mind was the rights and privileges of a firstborn son. Especially the son of a monarch who would inherit ruling authority. Again, Jesus being the son of God has the throne he is in charge. He is first over everything, meaning he is the one who is in charge and we ought to give him our loyalty. For God, in all of his fullness then, was pleased to live in Christ. And through him, God reconciled everything to himself. Jesus, then, who is fully God, acted as the reconciler between the Father and us. Jesus is the bridge that brings God and us together so that we can have a relationship with him for eternity, beginning today. Jesus is creator, king, sustainer, and reconciler. And let me tell you, when you ask the question, what does this have to do with us? It has everything to do with us. The object of your faith determines the outcome of your lives. If you do not have your faith in Jesus, can your object of your faith say all the things that I just described? So often we put our faith in something, and that thing disappoints us. That thing crumbles underneath of it. And for our whole lives, we're looking for something else to put our faith in or our trust in, to give us significance and value and worth, to help us live the outcome of our lives that we are called to have deep within our souls. The only one that can claim that is one that is a creator, one that is a sustainer, one that is a king, and one that is a reconciler. Because if he's the creator then everything has meaning and purpose behind it, including my life. We 
need to stop living our lives as victims, as if our lives don't matter or other people's lives matter more than ourselves. Comparison is the thief of joy. And there are so many people who have no joy because their eyes are so focused on what everyone else has or what their other kids can do or what they don't have or have. And Jesus is saying, listen, you have been created for a purpose to live life on purpose. And here's the greatest thing. Creation and science go hand in hand. If you sit here today and say, well, science doesn't have a play in this, it so does. Because science points back to a bigger creator who is over all things. And the greatest part about this, that science kind of doesn't get right, though it gets a lot of things right, when it comes to the creation of the world, what do they have to say about something that's been created from nothing? Nothing means no existence on this earth for you and I when it comes to purpose. But if we're created by a creator who has a reason and a purpose for you and I, then we can live our lives on purpose. You see, when you were created, you broke the mold. The mold that was set aside for you and for you alone. How about we start living on purpose knowing we have a creator who's behind this. And if he is king, that means he is on the throne, and I owe my allegiance to him. Now, you could look at that and say, oh, I have to just get in line. He's the king. I'm his subordinate. <laughs> when you look at God that way, you go back to Paul's previous life of looking at God as a dictator who you need to get in line with and follow the rules. But when you have a living relationship with the king, you want to follow him. You want to give him your loyalty because you and I know when we sit on the throne of our own lives and we're the king of our own lives and we try to make decisions, it leads to a disaster in our lives. But when we say, God, would you please occupy the king throne in my life? How awesome is it that we can just be loyal to him and trust him? And we can trust him because he sustains all things. He's on the throne, which means he's in control, and I don't have to worry. If you worry in this room, let me tell you, you are on the throne of your own lives. You feel like you have to control everything. And that's why Jesus says, listen, don't worry about tomorrow. So many of us are in tomorrow, and it drains us of the life we're called to live today. That's why Jesus says, give me today my daily bread. He has everything you need today. And if you live life in tomorrow, you'll never have what you need today. Because Jesus is here today. And he wants to give you everything. So don't have to worry. And he has everything that we need. We can depend on him. I can go to my heavenly dad who is on the throne and know that he loves me. That he'll give me all things. And how do I know that? How can I know I can depend on him? Because he's my reconciler. He has taken my fractured relationship with my heavenly dad, God. He makes it whole again. Jesus says, listen, you may be a really good dad. But I am a greater connection to our heavenly dad. Just come to me. I'll give you all that you need. You don't have to worry. He's created you for a purpose. Give your loyalty to him. And when we were fractured, we, and our relationship was fractured to God, we couldn't claim that, but we can now because of what Jesus has done on the cross and in the resurrection. 
And I love what David Powell says in the Zondervan exegetical commentary about this word reconciliation. He says the word group finds its roots in a Hellenistic political background where it was used in the realm of diplomatic relationships. But Paul, he transforms this concept. Look at this. Instead of the guilty party initiating the process of reconciliation, Paul emphasizes that it is God, the offended party, who took the initiative that while humans were still sinners. So if we were to follow this political uh, pattern back in Paul's day, if we were the ones that offended, we had to go and reconcile and ask for that. But God, through Christ, says, I'm going to flip it. And he, the offended party, comes to us and reconciles us with God. How incredible is that? Can the object of your faith hold up to something like that? Can your God that you worship can say that it would do anything to come and have a relationship with you? You see, what we don't understand is oftentimes the object of our faith, we're chasing, 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 chasing. We get it, and then we look down, and it's gone. Well, God has been chasing, 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 chasing us in Christ so that we can have a relationship with him. Can your object of your faith hold up to that? You see, Paul says, this includes you who were once far from God. We were called his enemies. Literally, we became his enemies. He just named us what we did. We were separated from him by your evil thoughts and actions. However, yet, but, when you see those words, you circle that and you write in your Bible, grace. This is grace. Now he has reconciled you to himself through the death of Christ in his physical body. And as a result of this grace, he has brought you into his own presence. And you are holy and blameless as you stand before him without a single fault. We go from God's enemies to holy and blameless sons and daughters. The only other person that's called holy and blameless and without a fault in the Bible is Jesus himself. And when we align ourselves with him, we have the same standing with God as Jesus does. The object of our faith determines the outcome of our lives. And when we put our roots in Jesus, we live this life that Paul said that the Colossians are living. He says, now the way you live will always honor and please the Lord. And your lives will produce every kind of fruit. All the while, you will grow as you learn to know God better and better. This is the outcome of life that God intended for us before we were even formed in our mother's womb. You look at the outcome of your life right now. Does it match up to a life like this? A life that knows God better and better and we live a life that bears fruit so other people can pick from our lives to become healthy in their own lives. It has everything to do with us. And so what I want to do is just to help us take next steps. I don't want us to be like, man, that message was impactful. What do you do with it then? And so what we want to continue to start doing is bringing this slide up often and explaining. Some of us are explorers. Some of us are beginners. Some of us are engaged in our faith in Christ, while other of us are further along and maybe influencing others. And so there's a step for all of, this, of, all of us coming out of this. 
If you're exploring, if it's true that the object of my faith determines the outcome of my life, are you content with the state of your life, both currently and the afterlife? A question that I just want you who are exploring Jesus to wrestle with in light of the object of the faith that you have right now. Excuse me, will it give you all that Christ can promise you? And if you're exploring, or whether you're a beginner, engager, or an influencer, it doesn't matter, really. I want you to take the foundations class. That's where we answer so many questions that are being asked. Don't sit there and call yourself an agnostic or call yourself a doubter and don't engage with questions. That's lazy. Engage and then let God prove himself to you that he's been chasing you this whole time. And if you're a beginner or you have engaged in your relationship with Christ, then you need to be baptized. And we're doing that November 23rd and 24th. We need to see you up here taking that next step of faith. And if you're an influencer, I want you to share your story of faith with someone who is exploring. There are people on the other side that are never going to step foot in this church, but they may be stepping foot in your life. And they're going to hear about who Christ is as king, creator, influence, or a reconciler, sustainer through you. And as our worship team comes out, I want them just to lead a song that highlights who Christ is. And I want to finish the story that I told you in the beginning. You see, I had this conversation with this girl. And she said, I'm exploring. And she says to me, I have a lot of questions and doubts. I just want to be honest with you. I looked her in the eye and I said, me too. And she said, what? I said, yeah, I have a lot of questions, a lot of doubts, a lot of struggles when it comes to faith. And she said, basically, you're a professional. <laughs> I said, I know. But I'm a human and I wrestle. And she said, well, I'm exploring. And I said, listen, whenever you want to have a safe place to be, come to our church. And it was so neat just to see someone, the wheels turning, seeing somebody, I kept thinking to myself, God is pursuing this woman. And she even said, wow, this happened yesterday and then talking to you today, surely I probably need to do something. I'm like, yeah, maybe you should. <laughs> see, God is in the business of taking these steps forward in a person's life. You may just be that link in someone's life because Christ is so amazingly wonderful and let's praise him for that today.